and the financing is so much better now for multifamily than it is for single family that highest and best use is to go to like a multifamily operator. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello, welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me, excited to have Nick Stagerberg. Nick, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. How about yourself? I'm doing uh, really well. So, uh, Nick, why don't you uh, give our listeners a bit about your background? You're with Black Swan uh, Real Estate, and just uh, tell us what your what a little bit about your background, and what you're doing today. Yeah, so uh, I have the privilege to lead a, a real estate private equity firm. We've got about a, a third of a billion in assets under management. We're just uh, just down the road from you. We're in Rochester, Minnesota, so you know an hour south of uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. There. And then uh, before doing this whole real estate thing, uh, I had the privilege to uh, uh, you know, lead two tech startups that were uh, very successful tech startups. The first one went from uh, 13 million in venture capital to 100 million in private equity sale over the course of nine years. Uh, mostly it was just great that we didn't go bankrupt because we started in 06 and turned out <laughs> to be a really rough time to do a financial purposes software company. Um, and then the second one, I did a, a software development startup for the Mayo Clinic, uh, the entrepreneurship movement. We created a, a software development consultancy to compete with outside firms for uh, for software development contracts at Mayo to keep the, the money and most importantly, the ideas in-house. So the same way like Google and Amazon and Facebook will, uh, will sponsor startups underneath their umbrella, uh, do that. Um, I've got uh, an amazing wife who's my full partner in the business. Her name's Elaine. And uh, I've got four kids uh, so far, seven, five, two, and, and 10 months. That's a, that's so a huge far. part of so my life there. You're pushing for more, man. Uh, you know, for some reason, Maybe. half dozen, that, that's always been a word that, you know, because you can just say half dozen. You go from yeah. one, two, three, or five to like a folksy yeah. term there. So. so easy. Yeah. 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 That's, that's After five, it gets tough because you don't fit in regular cars anymore. So that's that's no fun. Now you're in like passenger van territory. But I came from a family of six, and yeah, we had uh, some pretty good sized vans that we had <laughs> ride around. And although the, we were pretty spread out, so by the time I was, uh, and when I was five, my oldest brother was already out of the house. So mm-hmm. uh, we were pretty spread out there. So, anyways, um, the tr- you transitioned from you know the it sounds like a lot of success with these first companies to now all of a sudden moving over to real estate. So what's the mindset? Why, why go from what you're doing, being successful and why not, why not start your own uh, venture? Why not continue on? Uh, what, what was the reasoning to kind of, kind of switch gears? Yeah, great question. So when I was getting ready for the sale of uh, the, the first tech company that I was a part of, um, I, I didn't want to be like one of those people who win the lottery and they're bankrupt a year later. Uh, <laughs> so I, I did a bunch of research, a bunch of deliberate research of like, let's say you get a, a, a bunch of money. What do you do with it? What, what do you invest in? And over and over, all my research came back to real estate. That was hands down the number one thing, more millionaires made in real estate than any other industry, you know, typical American household, even though they're putting all their money at 401k. Uh, the majority of their net worth, 70% of their net worth is in their personal home. Like just real estate is a, it's a really great place to invest. So we, uh, we bought a, 
so in, in tech, it's called proof of concept. So you start with kind of like your smallest, you know, kind of test that you could do and just iterate, iterate towards success from that test. So we bought a, a $35,000 house in Oklahoma and uh, Elaine was miscarrying our first child as she laid ceramic tile and we did flooring and paint and just, it was a, you know, gut remodel, a sweat equity remodel. And you guys uh, went, were you living there? Uh, no, this was uh, so we lived in uh, in Oklahoma City at the time. Okay, and uh, this was uh, our first kind of purposeful investment property that we purchased. We bought a really, really, really distressed home, <laughs> and uh, you know it was definitely a D minus home. And it was uh, uh, dur during the day it was a Class C. Uh, when we were done, we we over during, during the day, not at night, but during at night, the day. night at night it was a D plus. That's. Uh, <laughs> Didn't want to leave your tools in that house overnight uh, or they, they won't be there the next day when you get yeah. there. So in any case, um, so that was our first one. And uh, the, the crazy thing is that tech payday, it, it never actually happened. So right before the company sold, uh, mm. I was terminated and my stock options were seized. And it turns out when there's a hundred million bucks on the table, people do crazy things that they wouldn't ordinarily do. Uh, and when I was done, at first it seemed like kind of a poke in the eye that I had this uh, you know, this, this stupid investment property. And, uh, and, and I was preparing for that, that windfall that paid it ever came. And after really kind of metabolizing that, I mean, I had like PTSD over this for six months. It was really, it was really devastating time in my life. I realized that that stupid little house was the most successful thing financially I'd ever done in my life. You know, it took us about six weeks to go through this wet equity rehab. We spent about 17,000 on all of our rehab. So it was about 35,000 to buy another 70,000, 52,000 all in. And when we were done, I think it appraised for like 85,000 or something like that. So we had, you know, made, uh, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, the equivalent of a good chunk of a year's salary, uh, just that time. And then, um, there wasn't a word for it at the time, but we did a, a Burr business models. We had a cash out refi and kept the house, rented it out. We got all of our money back out and a little bit extra, uh, so we could potentially do it again. And uh, and I realized, you know, if I could just get good at that, if I could go do that a whole bunch more times, um, you know, maybe I wouldn't need the next tech startup thing to become wealthy. This would just be a really kind of boring, but ultimately very predictable, sustainable way to financial freedom. Um, so we did that for several years and bought, you know, two houses and then four houses and eight houses. And we had about about 20, 20 doors, I would say, when I left left my tech day job and at that point, I felt like I'd kind of uh, conquered every mountain I could conquer in the tech world and uh, uh, decided to uh, to retire. Um, but I, I went to a Tony Robbins seminar. I don't know if you've ever been to one of these things, but uh, he has a way of getting excited and uh, setting big goals. And so my retirement lasted about you know 48 hours once I got there. And that's when we decided to start serving investors. Um, so, you know, the same thing that we had done over and over and over again for ourselves, uh, we decided to do for, uh, for for other people, for investors. And that's where our private equity fund came from. Well, eventually where our private equity came from, private equity firm came from. And that's kind of what what brought us to today. So, it, you know, the, the, the journey from tech to real estate started out as, you know, what to do with the extra money from tech. And then eventually became, man, there's actually more money to be had in this in this real estate thing than in the tech thing. What did you learn from your days in the tech industry, in the tech world that is critical to how you uh, do business today? Whether it was things you learned that were bad or things that you learned that were maybe good that you took with you. Yeah. So my wife is a, a physician. She's, you know, stepped back from, from practicing in medicine and, you know, I'm a, I'm a former career technologist. And I've stepped back from that, but we really apply sort of the culture of excellence that you get from both of those fields to real estate where, I would say real estate tends to have a little bit more of a, a regressive culture. It's not exactly a super, 
progressive, uh, you know, tech forward uh, type type of culture. Your For typical sure. investor might be, you know, 65 years old or something. And, you know, they're still doing a lot of things on paper. You know, you yeah. go to any, any leasing office and any apartment building and there's a whiteboard that has like their vacancies coming up and their turns and their cleaning and stuff. And even even when you have good property management software, people don't really use it very effectively. So, um, you know, like just just an example in tech, you learn that you can manage any workflow with really just two key performance indicators. So uh, the first is queue depth or the number, the, the amount of whip work in progress in any step in your in your value pipeline uh, and then velocity through that queue. So if you go look at your last iteration, let's say in the last week uh, you uh, you closed. 50 maintenance tickets and you have 100 maintenance tickets in your queue, then you're, you're closing out about half of your tickets in your queue every week. And that, that immediately tells you quite a bit about, you know, how healthy that step in your pipeline is. So we, you know, we put together a value pipeline where we buy a property, we renovate the property, we lease the property, we refinance the property, and we track our whole organization by just looking at queue depth and queue velocity. And we can instantly see where are the bottlenecks. So what are, what are the mm -hmm. things that are, that are holding us back right now? And where do we need to put additional resources? Uh, so right this second, I can actually, you know, pull up like our, our key performance indicators. And it looks like we have uh, 56 renovations that are in progress right now. And we closed out uh, seven of those last week. So that gives me some, some notion of kind of where we're at uh, with that. I can tell you that we got uh, 10 leases last week and we have about 58 properties that could potentially be leased, not necessarily economically vacant, but uh, have like someone moving out soon, like in the next 30 days that we could potentially lease. So my, you know, my, my renovation velocity and my leasing velocity relative to Q depth are at somewhat similar ratios. And, and, you know, as something comes out of rehab down, we need to, we need to lease it. So you can, you can analyze a, a relative, a relatively complex endeavor very quickly using these management techniques. And we do it all just in Google sheets. So even though I could theoretically write software to do this stuff, um, complexity is the enemy of execution. So yeah. really veteran technologists, they are not intrigued by technology. They know that like the best technology is something like eyeglasses like you forget they're there because they work so well and mm. uh and so we literally just have uh, a google sheet like one one spreadsheet to add our entire value pipeline in there and everyone in the company can see it all at all times uh we have another sheet that manages our crm and another sheet that manages you know all of our all of our uh, properties that we need to lease so you know on a iphone android pc mac whatever you can pull it up it all updates in real time and, uh, you know, I'll show this stuff to other people in the industry and they'll say, oh, I'm paying, you know, 100 grand a year in licensing fees for a piece of technology that's not as good as this. And this, and this costs us nothing. And, uh, and and people actually actually use it. You know, we have like a big, uh, big screen TV on the wall in, for the leasing team where they can see all the you know, leasing uh, units. And uh, that's another tech thing is, is information radiators. So um, those are just a few of the, the principles, but we really run our real estate company like a, like a medical practice or like a tech company. Um, you know, one of, one of those medical practice things is a safety culture. So, you, you know, your first day on the job, we tell you, you can never get in trouble for reporting a problem. In fact, the only thing you can ever get in trouble for is failing to report a problem. So if you see something, say something, just like if you're in a surgical procedure and you think maybe we forgot a sponge. Uh, you are obligated to say, hey, I think we forgot a sponge. Oh, sorry, I, I just mixed up the count. You, you can't get in trouble for that. You're, yep. it, is, it is not allowed for you to get in trouble for that. You, you have to be able to speak up without fear of uh, uh, retribution or, or judgment or something like that. Um, so that's an example of how we use you know, uh, medical culture as well. Yeah, but, but really good. I like, I mean, I like a lot of that. Um, 
the the tech part that really speaks to me like the best tech is simple simple tech mm-hmm. like it's just simplicity where you put the eyeglasses on and like you don't even know they're there they're just because you're just so used to them like they're easy right and i get i get so irritated with all these apps that everybody wants me to be a part of and do and i'm kind of like i got this app this app this app this app and they all do kind of the same thing but I, everybody wants me to use these things to simplify things, but yet it makes it more difficult to communicate and it just drives me crazy. So I love uh, a tech guy saying that, like you guys are using Google Sheets. You're not using anything crazy. You don't have all these wild tools out there, but you know, you are using technology. It's just, you're doing, you're using it so simple, right? And it, and it's, and then your KPIs too, you're, you don't have a million KPIs, right? You're just tracking a few of the critical things on every step of the process, right? Is that, yep. is, did I get did I get that right? Am I am I gathering it? Yeah, that's exactly right. And people get obsessed with having a million key key performance indicators, but the more the more you have to track, the the less each one means. So you really need to just keep it simple, uh, keep it clear, and you're going to have a lot of success with with any any key performance metric. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Um, let's, so what, what kind of deals are you doing right now today? What's your, what's your focus? What's black swans focus all about? Yeah. So we love, uh, we love single family homes and we love multifamily though. Right now the, the economics on the single family side just doesn't make a ton of sense that that market is kind of frozen up like 40% of all mortgages on single family homes in the country right now are below 3%. So no one's moving anytime soon. No, yeah. no one's surrendering that two and a half percent mortgage. The mortgage on my personal home is two and a half percent. I'm not surrendering that to get a seven and a half percent mortgage to go mm-hmm. get a home that's you know worth a third of my current home's value to keep my my mortgage payment the same. Yeah. So there's just very little movement in the single family space, and then uh, you know mortgage rates are still extraordinarily high. So so the, the numbers just don't work very well. Um, multifamily is uh, is our biggest focus right now by far. And, uh, you know, the first two quarters of last year, we didn't, or the first three quarters, we didn't buy anything. Uh, first three quarters of 2022, uh, interest rates were, were low, but, uh, but prices were sky high and we just did not feel, we were writing offers, but just nothing was getting accepted. Yep. And, uh, and then we bought uh, six deals in Q4 2022. And we've got one more that we're going to close on here shortly. So uh, we would find properties that, uh, you know, the seller, I think figured out they really needed to sell now. Like there's, you know, the conditions were not getting better anytime soon. And if they sold now, they could at least, you know, hit a break even or something like that. We picked up two properties where we paid uh, the same price that seller had paid in 2017. They, you know, gotten into trouble with their lender on a variable rate loan. And, um, you know, we're on a watch list. The, the lender actually reached out to us on one of the deals. That's, that's where that deal came from. And uh, we love buying, you know, deals that have a story. One of the properties we purchased, uh, you know, 50% of the units were in rent collections uh, of some amount or another. Uh, so pr- pretty much any assumption you can make about the property with that one data point alone is, is probably accurate. And, uh, and it was, you know, something where we had to really roll up our sleeves. Uh, but we've already, you know, we're already had millions of dollars in that, in that particular project. Uh, just, it just takes a lot of grit to step into something like that. And there, there are a lot of properties out there that during the COVID moratorium, um, got into kind of a bad spot in terms of rent collections. And, uh, you know, we're, so we're just looking for any opportunity to, to add value. Uh, we're also doing a lot of uh, creative finance. So um, we work with regional banks a lot. 
Uh, we have a property under contract right now. It's a $27 million and it's a, we're doing a contract for deed. So the in-place note is 2.3% fixed for another couple of years. Mm. So it's pretty, pretty valuable for us to keep that note. And it's yeah. got a $20 million balance on it even. So even the, even the, you know, the, the LTV percentage, so to speak, is, is pretty favorable. Uh, so we're putting uh, $3 million down on that. And the, and the story with that one is, um, you know, all over the country, uh, municipalities required uh, new construction developers to do mixed use. So uh, this building is, you know, four stories of apartment units on top and then main floor commercial. It's a gigantic building. It's an entire city block in, you know, urban core uh, Rochester. And that main floor commercial is probably 25,000 square feet of, of commercial. It's like a small shopping mall. And it's all white box space. It's it's oh, never empty. been occupied. Yeah, oh. yeah. So all, all these buildings that came online in, you know, 2019, th this building unfortunately came online in December 2019. So just a really unfortunate time for an urban core mixed use asset to come online. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to convert, there's like 22 commercial bays. We're going to convert 18 of them to uh, to residential. So we're going to do like an urban loft. We'll build like a mezzanine layer with like a bedroom and a bathroom. And then you still have this really beautiful floor to ceiling glass. And we're going to leave the concrete pillars exposed and stuff. And it should be a really fun concept, kind of like an urban townhome. Um, and there's, there's probably the, the real vacancy rate in commercial in the country right now is, is probably about 50%. It's a staggering amount of commercial vacancy. There's lots of shopping malls, strip centers that are struggling, office space that's struggling. And someone has to come up with a solution for this. So we hope this could be uh, you know, a solution. These are theoretically uh, work-live units. That's the zoning classification for them. So you could theoretically operate a business or use them as a, as a residential unit. Uh, you could run like a, you know, like a one man law office or accounting practice or something like that on the main floor. And then you have like a bed, you know, upstairs. Um, I, I hope that it works out. I think it will, uh, but we're going to spend about 3 million on that build out and hopefully we'll increase the asset value by about 6 million uh, with, with that build out um, very affordable build outs. Cause we've already got floors and walls and ceilings yep. and floor ceiling glass. It's relatively inexpensive for us to put in the, the finishes Some and, plumbing uh, and electrical yeah. and, and things like that. But are yeah. you, did you have to change the, the use of, of that or was it already allowed? So on mixed use projects to do a work live unit often does not require a significant, uh, significant zoning change or variance or anything of that nature. So uh, we've already gotten all the approvals we need and, and we just need to pull building permits, you know, the day after we close. So for most people, most cities are going to be open to a work live concept if you can kind of, you know, get them on board with it, basically. Yeah. Uh, mo most cities you walk around and there's big swaths of vacant space right now. So, um, you know, cities are much more receptive than they you know were in the past to proposals to, to convert that space. Um, and I've talked to experts all over the country. You're not, not experts. There's no such thing. I've talked to people who have tried this <laughs> all over the country and some people they'll do like a, a full second floor and uh, that's mm -hmm. like the residential space. And the main floor is like your office and do like traditional office. Some people, they split it vertically. So you have like a full second floor for half the units all walled off. And then that front is like an office. So it's sure. all residential in one vertical slice, all commercial in one vertical slice. So you have like a front office that has an exterior door. Um, some people have done, you know, pseudo industrial. So think someone, uh, running like an Amazon uh, store or something like that, where they have a, yep. they need kind of clean uh, space to, you know, maybe do some very light manufacturing and packaging and shipping. Um, 
the, the universal feedback I've gotten from all these people who have tried these different concepts is that no one truly uses that space, uh, that, that commercial space. Everyone just uses it as a residential unit. So, um, you know, they, they would, you know, their lesson learned is if they could do it over again, they would build it in such a way that it could be a work-live unit. It, it could conceivably be a work-live unit, but it's built optimally to be a residential unit. People use them as like work from home spaces, you know, but, uh, but no one is like entertaining the public in any way, shape or form in these work live units. So yeah, we're going to do that sense. mezzanine loft thing. And I think, I think that's going to be a really good concept. I think it's going to work well. Cool. Well, that's exciting. It'll be fun to see how that plays out and um, have to have you back here when, yeah. when you're all done and hopefully, a, a hopefully occupied. <laughs> oh yeah. Right. Well, right. I know the residential will fill up. So that's, yeah, that's the residential will. Yeah. Interesting. So, and then you've, you, uh, have, uh, I think you're on phase three of a development, uh, and, and t- take us through that. So you're doing this, uh, single family home development, uh, take us through kind of what you're doing. And then I, I got some questions just on development. Yeah. So this is a Stonehaven townhomes and it's, a it's, it's kind of interesting. So we bought a, uh, a distressed build for sale, uh, townhome community, and then we uh, basically took it to a, a as a build for rent concept. So the the builder uh, their you know their their first units were coming online in January 2020, which was just unfortunate timing on their part. And if if you recall the like the single family sales market, the owner occupant sales market just froze for yeah. several months when COVID first hit. And so they they weren't selling anything. And they said, okay, well let's try leasing the units just to fill them up. And, uh, and then they filled up some of them and they realized, oh crap, now we're a property management company and they were ill-equipped to be a property manager. And then they said, to heck with it, we'll just try to sell the whole thing. But now you need to find someone who, you know, like a, like a institutional player or something, they just want a turnkey, uh, you know, asset that's all complete right. work, something that's shovel ready, that they can bring in their own people to, to build it as they, as they want with their processes and their finishes or whatever. Um, you know, like a residential home builder, you know, they they don't want these tenant occupied, freshly leased out units. And it just, just, there's not a lot of people that would want to buy such a project. So um, it was great for us. So it's kind of like training wheels for new development because, you know, first phase was, you know, mostly complete. And then, uh, and then we had an approved general development plan for phase two and, and phase three and uh, or for, for, for remaining units. It wasn't, yeah. open to phase or anything at that time so we kind of wrapped up the existing units uh you know rented them all out they're all individual parcels which uh is a really cool uh you know unique concept with uh with townhomes is um that reduces your mill rate by 25 percent compared to a multifamily project and in most municipalities the mill rate is about 25 percent higher for multifamily zoning and uh and then gives you an alternative uh, exit strategy i think it kind of intrinsically improves the value of those units um if for some reason it made sense to sell them as individual units at some point in the future or uh you know some subsequent seller 50 years from now you know would, would potentially sell them as uh, as owner occupied units would that so be part of your exit strategy at all no uh right now and that's a fascinating thing by the way because like 20 years ago if you built a townhome community you'd almost certainly get highest and best use uh, selling to owner occupants, you get the highest sales price and and yeah. everything. But today, there is so much liquidity in the multifamily space, just looking for a place to go. And the financing is so much better now for multifamily than it is for single family. That highest and best use is to go to like a multifamily operator. There's some institutional, you know, uh, buyer that would, you know, pay 
uh, too much money for uh, for this type of product because it's a very low touch, low maintenance product. You know, brand new mm -hmm. construction. Uh, mm -hmm. We run like a like a thirty two percent expense ratio on this product. It's just unbelievably low touch, and uh, and then you can probably go get you know a loan for you know these days in the low fives or something. If you get a HUD loan, it might take you a little time to get it, but you can get a really affordable HUD loan still on this type of product. Yeah. Whereas if you sold to a, a single family buyer, they're looking at a seven and a half percent mortgage and right. Uh, and and they might have to produce a larger down payment than they they would have had to even nine months ago, and uh, and they just they don't have the cash they don't have the credit so there's a very interest it's it's easier to get financing uh, in a build for rent subdivision than a build for sale subdivision by by leaps and bounds right now so that's an interesting dynamic in the marketplace right now. Yeah, definitely. You know, we'll see how things shape out. Obviously when it's ready when it's time to sell, but that's one of the benefits that I liked with the rent-owned communities is that we could sell a phase. We could sell part of a phase. We could, you know, there's just so many options where you could you go, Hey, we're going to sell these houses. We're going to keep these, you know, there's just, there's just a lot of different ways you can slice it. If you want some equity injections, um, you know, and once it's all done, you can package it all together and sell it. Uh, like you said, you can refinance it. I mean, there's just so many different options you can, you can go about with it, but really cool. What, what, um, you know, what difficulties came has have come about with doing new development? Yeah. So <laughs> this is a, this is almost a little, little too, too on the nose for me. Cause I, I just got done meeting with uh, some <laughs> officials here and getting a no from them. Um, you know, if you, if, if, if someone listening has maybe done a, a, a deal where they've purchased an existing single family, multifamily project, new development is probably 10 to a hundred times harder than, than that. Um, there, there's just, it's, it's slow. Hmm. Everyone can say no. Um, I swear every gosh darn day, I get a call from someone who says that uh, it's going to be an extra hundred thousand dollars. Like, oh, sorry, the it's a little too cold outside. That'll be an extra $100,000. Oh, sorry, it's a little too wet outside. It's going to be an extra $100,000. Uh, fortunately, I've got a fantastic builder. We've been able to, to stay on budget. But uh, when you're doing like a, you know, repositioning a multifamily community, uh, no one calls and says it's going to be an extra hundred grand. Like, you just don't yeah. get that call. And, and, you know, like the city will call and say, sorry, we've had an adjustment in our permitting fees and that'll be an extra $100,000. And they don't, it doesn't even seem to register with them that, like they just assume you have an extra hundred thousand dollars just sitting in your back pocket right now. It's the craziest thing. Um, really crazy things, unexpected things happen in every project. And I'm a new developer, so maybe I'm just not good at this. But when I've talked to coaches and mentors uh, that you know I've, I've learned from uh, in regards to new development, they've said that every project is different. So, so for example, Stonehaven Phase Two. The municipality I was working with, they had their own plan review office and they disbanded their plan review office after approving my plans. <laughs> and they said, oh, we'll just have the county have their plan review office, you know, just, you know, rubber stamp it or whatever. And then the county disagreed with how that city had approved <laughs> the plan. And uh, ultimately, we had to take we had to almost like sue the county and go to the state over a disagreement about the uh, adjudication of these plans and how they fit, fit into building code. It really boiled down to the county said these were apartments and the city said they were townhomes and no one could, could, could agree. Like you'd think this would be a really straightforward sure. thing, 
But as soon as we're apartments now, we're in a different zoning classification. So we'd have to get our zoning changed on our land. And we'd have to uh, have a riser room with sprinklers and additional water mains and uh, centrally monitored fire alarm systems and like huge cost escalations. And no one no one cares. Like they just I get a call from the counties just saying, oh, by the way, we bumped you up to apartments. Congratulations. I'm like, what the heck does that mean? And, uh, and the city, <laughs> just a fantastic city to work with. They have done done really well by us and they 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 tried to fight for us and so at the end of the day it was okay but it took about six months to even wow. get everyone to agree if we were building apartments or townhomes and wow. and these types of things are, are common you know um and it, it might take a year to get a project off the ground or if you're in a high regulatory area it might take two or even three years to get a project mm. off the ground but a lot can change in that yeah. time, man. Oh, oh yeah. Like, like we're seeing today, right? Yeah. Your, your numbers just go out the window during, during yeah. that time. Frame. Uh, you know, construction costs have gone up 25%. You know, so our first units were 200K a unit and our, our last units are two, 260 a unit or something yeah. in hard costs. It's just staggering the cost escalations. And those are not, those are not unusual. It's not like we are running away with higher level finishes. If anything, we've like, pulled back a little bit on those mm -hmm. things as we built them, just trying mm -hmm. to trying to cope with the, the cost escalations. Um, but th so the upside to this is if you master the development process, I, I definitely, I personally have always observed that new developments kind of like the, the apex of the food chain and real estate, where if you get really good at it, that's kind of where the most profit is. And it's, it's certainly a ton of fun. It's yeah. a ton of fun to, you know, build something new where, there was nothing before and you get to, you get to pick it all out. So we get to build the exact product that is going to be the most efficient for us to manage. That's going to get our ideal tenant, like, okay, we want all LVP floors, you know, top of the line, premium LVP floors, you know, all upstairs, all downstairs. And if I go buy something on the market, it's going to have carpet upstairs, you know? And I just know that our ideal tenant, they love our all LVP floors. And that's, that's a trivial cost escalation in new construction, but to go rip out carpet and put an LVP in existing construction, it's very expensive. Yeah. So, um, so new develops, uh, it's, it's just a huge amount of fun there. And then when you master the game and it's, it's very much a game, you know, just like, just like anything. Um, it's uh, a trying to think of a way to describe it. So, an apartment unit, like an existing apartment unit, it has like a relatively uh, knowable value. Like I could, I could ask you, Todd. You know, if you're buying uh, a uh, a classy unit in Kentucky, like in a in a decent area, not great, not bad. Like how much is that unit worth? And you could probably tell me within you know twenty percent what that what that unit costs. Yep. But in the new development world, um, you can go buy some land. You can go get that land entitled which could take a year and cost you a lot of sanity. So it's a tremendous amount of work, but relatively modest cost input. So you could buy some land for hundred K, you could spend another hundred K on entitlements for that land. And when you're done, that land could be worth like $2 million. So it's just, it's just alchemy, you know, converting lead to gold. And then you can roll that equity into your construction project. So maybe you then build a $10 million apartment building on that land and that, ten, that that apartment building only costs you know ten million dollars. You only need two million dollars down, so that equity from the land is is it. And there's an infinite amount of creativity that's available. So I own a, a bunch of single family homes, and uh, the I work with commercial banks for construction lending, and they wanted some additional you know cash to close. So I use the equity from the entitled land to roll into the build, and I said, hey, could I put in like three houses? Can I just th throw three houses into the construction loan? And then when we're done, 
uh, if we hit certain like covenants and LTVs and stuff like that, uh, the SCRs, uh, can I get those houses back? Can you just like put a lien on them and then, and then take that lien off, you know, in a couple of years when everything's stabilized and they're like, huh, sure. Why not? Yep. So you can like, so we'll have this beautiful class A community with, with really very little cash in the deal. It's, it's a lot of work. It's a tremendous amount of work and a lot of worry, <laughs> a lot of stress. Um, yeah. For uh, no reward too, until, until the project's done, you know, or, or getting very close to done. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what's always made me nervous with development. But you're right; it's very profitable, and but but you have to become good at it. I I, I think uh, that's that's where a lot of people get burned is they just think anybody can do it, which anybody can. But again, it's a it's like anything; it's a learning curve, yeah. and you don't have an existing product to kind of help bail you out of your mistakes. Um, it's, you know, you it make, is brutally unforgiving. Yeah. It's, like, I have made mistakes that have cost me a hundred thousand dollars, like in five minutes, you know, like all of a sudden mm. I realize I just made a hundred thousand dollar mistake. And, uh, with, with existing, like, it's really hard to make a hundred thousand dollar mistake that you can't recover from yeah. very easy to make those mistakes in new development. Yeah, definitely. Are you partnering then with, um, with the, with the develop development companies with the, you know, are they partnering with you in, in any way? Yeah, great question. So very common to do co-developments, very yeah. common to have partnership groups because it is, it's an explicitly political process and knowing the rules of the road, having the connections, knowing um, what to ask for, because you can ask for all kinds of things. They're never going to give it to you, a builder, a, uh, you know, a contractor, and, and most critically, a city official or some other maybe non-government entity, they're never going to give you something without you asking. But if you just know to ask, you can get it. So for mm -hmm. example, uh, there's a developer that I have a great relationship with and I needed to get um, a tax subsidy for this project. So uh, I was the third failed developer into this piece of land in 20 years, <laughs> which is which is a common situation, by the way. So so I was sitting here thinking to myself, am I really so arrogant just to believe I can succeed with <laughs> other people? Who am I? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember doing the, uh, the title search on the land and my attorney's like, well, here's the first field developer. <laughs> here's the second field developer. Uh, and here's where the city took the land back over. Cause even the bank gave up on it. And then here's you. <laughs> and here's your name right here. So let's see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> let's see what uh, happens. Yeah. Um, so I went to the city and said, listen, this is kind of like cursed land. And it's, it's kind of a blight that it's in this prominent location. It's a great location. And it's just not being developed. And we're at, you know, you know, right on the right on the fringe of financial feasibility here. Um, you know, can you can you help? Can you offer any kind of uh, tax subsidy? And this isn't something that's well known, but um, almost all multifamily projects in the country involve some form of subsidy uh, to get out of the ground. So like in single family homes, you just you just build it like it, there's not there's not tax subsidy involved in it. But single family is not a very profitable zoning classification for municipalities because they've got to run a ton of roads and ton of sewers and maintain those for the next couple hundred years with like a relatively limited, limited tax basis to, to pay for that infrastructure. So you have to imagine a, an apartment building, you've got a huge yeah. amount of tax basis running off of, you know, one, very you little. Know, uh, one Rose. water main, yeah. one gas main, you know, one road. So uh, municipalities are very excited to see a new multifamily project come in. Uh, and then the numbers just, 
they don't work very well. <laughs> they, they, they frankly don't work very well. Uh, you have to have a long-term orientation to make the numbers work in multifamily development. So municipalities are very accustomed to developers coming to them asking for a tax tax subsidy. So I partnered with a developer and I said, uh, hey, experienced developer, can you do some consulting on my project? And I will give you uh, 10% of whatever you can get for me. I don't even know what it is, but just just come show up to the meetings with me, advise me, put together because um, like I have my own pro formas and he was looking at me. He's like, well, no, no, the city doesn't care about this stuff. Like they only care about this stuff. So we need to present it to them in a way that highlights the things that they care about. Um, so we need to put together spreadsheets that show tax revenue and how this is a favorable, you know, so, so my, yeah. my projections show how tax is an expense. And we need to show them projections on how taxes are an income yeah. source, right? How are they going to make, how are they, because it's their, they're right. looking at it. They're not looking, they don't care how much you make. They care how much they make. Yeah. That's and right. How much do we not have to spend? How much do we make? All right. That's right. Not, well, so let's do we this. We were able to get a, a subsidy where we got a 90% reduction in the city taxes for seven years that'll add up to about a $1.3 million uh, tax subsidy. And that's a, you know, that's a, that's a bankable asset essentially. Um, that's great. You know, that's going to you know, use your NOI in the future. Whenever you go to sale or refi, it's a long enough time frame that it can certainly do that. Um, so it's, it's a very favorable, you know, kind of package to put together. Uh, sometimes you can get that. That's a pay as you go subsidy, by the way. So that's the mm -hmm. most favorable one to the city because it costs them nothing because this is all revenue they would have gotten or they, this is, new revenue for them and i built my own infrastructure so they didn't have to pay for that new infrastructure and it's new infrastructure mm -hmm. so they don't have to pay for maintenance on it anytime soon yeah. and then as i'm paying in tax revenue they rebate that that tax revenue back so it's it's kind of a no-brainer uh for yeah. them and you know eight years from now now they have this beautiful still very new product that's paying in huge tax revenues for them uh, but you can get all kinds of uh, subsidies. You can get, you know, upfront cash payments where, yep, we'll give you money today or we'll give you money as soon as you get a certificate of occupancy. Um, and and uh, you'd think that multifamily developers, they would have on-staff architects and drafts persons and engineers. No, no, they have on-staff grant writers. They have, <laughs> they have people who are good at going out and begging for money. Yeah. Um, 75% you know, of the units that were built this past year were, were LIHTC units, were Section 42 tax credit units. Yeah, those um, you can so sell. Getting subsidies is a huge part of doing multifamily new development. Yeah, yeah, love it. Yeah, those LIHTC people, people sell those to people who have tax problems and then uh, it helps them fund their development. So there's, there's a lot of creative ways to do it, which is one of the cool parts about development. You mentioned, <clears throat> you mentioned, you know, $100,000 mistakes, which is always a, kind of a kick in the pants, right? But on that, and yeah. it doesn't have to be development. It could be anything, the, a mistake that you've made somehow, somewhere in, in your business. Uh, let us know, what, what kind of mistake did you make, but how, more importantly, how can our listeners learn from it? Sure. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'd say the biggest mistake I, I've probably made in like this, this iteration of my business is not hiring faster. I wish mm. I wish I had hired um, so, so we're vertically integrated. So we're, we have a private equity firm. We raise our own capital. We don't have like an institution go right. out and raise capital for us. Um, and we do our own like in-house marketing and investor relations. Uh, we own our own property management company. And then we have our own maintenance people, our own facilities team that does, you know, cleaning. And next year we're going to bring in house snow removal. That's a, that's a big old beast to take on in our climate is, uh, oh, yeah. is snow removal. But each time we do that, each time we bring something in, in-house, uh, it, it sucks for like six months. And then it's like, gosh, how did we ever 
get by without having yeah. in-house staff. That, yeah, that why did we not have that? Yeah. So Nick, when, when do you know, like, when's the right time? Because you don't want to have too many staff and like overload that. But when do you know when the right time is? Yeah, I think I think a lot of people do the math wrong on this. They think <clears throat> I need to have a certain revenue stream yeah. uh, to support that that staff person. Well, every single staff person you hire, they they should be reducing expenses or mm-hmm. increasing revenue mm-hmm. by a multiple of their salary. And if they're not, like you're either failing to to lead them properly, you haven't set expectations and put good systems and process in place, or you don't have the right person in the right seat. Yeah. And um, I don't know, you know, I think a lot of people just like struggle with that limiting belief. And, and certainly, you know, my, my big mistake is not hiring, you know, faster. So I'm, I'm sure I'm subject to that. I'm right there with you, by the way, Nick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so for, for me, as soon as I can have someone be productively busy, when I see I have a work stream in my business where yeah. I know that person could be, you know, profitable, essentially. Uh, so the most recent thing we brought in house was facilities was cleaning. Hmm. And we literally just looked at our PL and we said, we spent, uh, you know, a quarter of a million dollars last year on cleaning. Jeez. That's crazy. So we can hire many full-time employee cleaners uh, for a quarter of a million dollars a year. And, 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 you know, that bill would probably be because, because of our growth trajectory, that bill would probably be closer to like half a million for the, for 2023. So you could hire like a dozen cleaners for that kind of money. And, you know, we don't need, we don't need a dozen full-time employees to the cleaners. That tells me we could probably save on average, I would say we save about 50%, somewhere in that territory. So as soon as I look at my PL and I see like an expense stream going to a vendor uh, or even, you know, professional services, we're bringing in, you know, in-house accountants, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when I see I can I can have an employee do this or, or I see a, a, an opportunity. So we recently just had someone start working on acquisitions, um, kind of doing some of the um, you know, uh, front frontline work. And then, and then he'll escalate to me when we get, you know, get someone on the line, so to speak. Um, and I just thought, gosh, if we, you know, if we have like just one more acquisition of, of, you know, considerable size in the coming year by having a full-time employee, like that pays for his whole salary for the year. Um, like surely if someone is working full, his, his desk is right here. That's why I'm kind of pointing in this direction. Um, surely if this person is working for an entire year on acquisitions, we'll get at least one additional acquisition of size. So, yeah. you know, you need to make sure you don't run out of cash. We keep a year's worth of salary um, in cash uh, to, to, I think that's a covenant, a sacred covenant between an employer and employee. Like if I'm, you know, if you're on the payroll, like you are on the payroll, like I can't because I've made poor financial decisions or haven't planned appropriately. So we, we keep quite a bit of cash on hand to, to make sure we're able to make payroll. But um, that's how I know when I need to hire. Yeah. Love it. Love it. It's always hard. It's a tough decision to make, but every time I've made it, and it sounds like every time you've made it, you've went, wow, I should have hired that person quicker. Like, you know, you knew you needed that person and you didn't hire him. You kind of wait, you wait, you wait, because hiring is a big, big choice and it is a big expense, but then you go, oh man, (laughs) I should have done that sooner. Um, All right. So Nick, I got a couple last questions. I want to wrap up. Um, So favorite book that you can uh, pass down to our listeners. Let's see, maybe a maybe a unique one people haven't heard before would be The Alchemist. Um, mm-hmm. Short book, you can read it in, you know, probably four hours or something like that, I'm guessing. I really love that book. And uh, you know, it's written like a parable from thousands of years ago, but it was actually written in, you know, in modern times. And uh, just a lot of very beautiful meanings in that book about finding your personal legend and, and adventure and, and finding uh, meaning in life. Um, so The Alchemist would be something I'd recommend. Love it. Love it. All right. Last question. What are your three pillars of wealth creation? 
three pillars of wealth creation. Let's see. So I'm a big fan of uh, of like Warren Buffett type principles. So I guess I would say never sell. You know, Warren Buffett would say never buy something that you'd be sad about holding if the market just you know shut down for a decade. Uh, we've never sold anything the whole time we've been doing this. That's how we've been able to get to a third of a billion in assets under management so quickly is we're not you know constantly churning and selling assets. We do a, a cash out refi. We hold that asset. Um, what I, I love uh, finding people who are more successful than me further down the journey than I am and just, you know, kind of soliciting wisdom from them. And I'll ask them, you know, like, what's your biggest regret? And it's, it's crazy, but amongst really successful real estate investors, almost a hundred percent of them, they'll say, I regret everything I've ever sold. Hmm. I regret everything I've ever sold. And I'm like, yeah. huh, I guess I just shouldn't sell things then. That was, you know, just kind of the, the take what I had and, <laughs> And I'm very glad that I have kept everything. Uh, every now and yeah. then, you know, my wife will say, hey, can't we sell this one? This one's not not our nicest property. I'm like, well, let's just do like a nice remodel on it or something. Let's not sell it. Um, let's see. Uh, the next one would be doing doing the hard thing. And especially kind of in the syndication world or the private equity world, I would say there's an obsession with like the, the four-hour work week. Um, you know, people brag about, oh, I don't. I don't, you know, I don't have to work at this or whatever. And, uh, you know, I guess I, I don't know, have anyone, any of my people that I respect that um, their goal is to do nothing. Yeah. Uh, you know, Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg, these people are working hundred hour work weeks. They are yeah. all in on their thing. And, and that's something that they're proud about. And uh, so we do like, we, we started doing property management in-house out of the gate. Cause we just knew it's, it's really hard to do property management in-house. It is, the escalations that get to your level of visibility, you know, there's fires and evictions and uh, just, just tenant disputes and stuff like that. But um, we are, we are the, the organization we are today. We've been able to grow as quickly as we've been able to grow because we have that, that, uh, that base. Um, so do the hard thing and, and, and you will thank yourself for it in the long run. And then I guess I would say uh, focus on the long term. Um, it's really easy to, to kind of look for a quick, you know, quick wins or or whatever, uh, you know, real estate, it's, it's not a get rich quick thing. It's not how it works. It's a get rich for sure. Uh, kind of investment class. You know, if you want to go, if you want to get rich quick, go try crypto. You know, um, if you just like, if you just have a few pieces of real estate, like five houses and you owned them outright, like you're, you're probably set for life that you probably have enough money that you'll be able to put food on the table and have a roof over the head for the rest of your life. Like, it doesn't have to be any more complicated or, or right. bigger than that. And right. you just focus on long term. And anytime I frame frame that to someone, I'm like, you know, they're, they're trying to do like a analysis. If I draw 4% from my 401k and I have social security, <laughs> no, no, no. Like, like if you have like one apartment building, if you have one apartment building, you're set for life. Like, yeah. you, like you don't need to do anything else. So just focus on the long term and, and, uh, and you're going to be, you're going to do well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, a, like you said, it's not, a, it's not get rich quick. You're not going to, but it is, it is actually kind of quick. It's just not overnight. Right. It can, it can be, I think anybody that focuses and does, does this business can get pretty dang wealthy in 10 years or less. Yes. And that's a really short period of time. Absolutely. So. Cool. Well, Nick, look, I, I really appreciated this. A uh, lot, a lot of fun. Appreciate you going through all this stuff. Love the KPIs, love, uh, you know, that the tech and just being simple and, um, you know, just all, all the tips that you've given us on development. So this has been, this has been a blast. I appreciate you joining us. How can our listeners get in touch with you, learn more about uh, Black Swan and, and uh, your, you know, what you got going on? 
Thanks, Todd. It's been an honor to be here. Yeah. How can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, anyone here can go to uh, meetblackswan.com, meetblackswan.com. And uh, you can sign up for our newsletter. Uh, we've got a, a course that's a pay what you can model and 100% of the revenue goes to charity uh, for our course. You can learn about our private equity funds. If you want to, you can just block time on my calendar. I have a link to my calendar right there on meetblackswan.com. Um, awesome. Every month we do a free educational event. So uh, next month we're um, doing a little like kind of, you know, two hour masterclass on uh, understanding like a traditional syndication structure. This uh, earlier this week, we did our most recent one and we did a uh, passive investing, just talking about stocks and bonds and alternative assets, that sort of thing. So we, we try to just, uh, just put out as much, just good content, like real educational content as we can for our community. And uh, yeah, yeah, anyone can go to meetblackswan.com and check all those things out. Love it. Love it. Again, Nick, really appreciate it. And uh, you have a fantastic rest of the day. Thanks Todd. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. Go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. Your rating and review just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and, and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to venturedproperties.com, venturedproperties.com and download our free ebook uh, on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, and, and also, look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go to coachwithdex.com and check that out and uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.